Now, I've often thought, why is it, Lord, that you would give this tremendous compliment of all compliments to John the Baptist? And I've pondered that. And number one, I think it's because he had a heart to please God. Number two, he could care less what people think. And number three, the most significant trait that I believe is highlighted here in our text of Scripture this morning, he was not wanting to make a name for himself, but for Jesus Christ. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Greatest Born of Women. When dealing with the third chapter of the Gospel of John, most expositors focus on the passage that deals with Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus, and they tend to gloss over the latter part of the chapter that gives more information on John the Baptist. But of course, all scripture is inspired by God and useful, so today, let's look at that passage beginning in verse 22. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. If you're with us for the very first time, we've been studying our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great gospel. You know, if I were one just to preach the highlights of a book, I would certainly probably skip this portion of Scripture. It would be very tempting to do that. And yet this is such a rich, 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 rich passage of Holy Scripture. It's all inspired by God, but certainly not what many would consider the highlights of Scripture. In fact, I thought about it this week, and I've never heard a sermon in my life on this portion of Scripture. And I have some 50 commentaries in the Gospel of John, and most of them just virtually skip over it. And yet it's such a vital portion, because what we find here unique in this Gospel is the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus Christ interfacing with one another. Now, John the Baptist was a great man. The Lord said of him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a statement. Now, many would have thought that that might be made of Abraham, the friend of God, who displayed such great faith up there on top of Mount Moriah, willing to give Isaac his only begotten the one who's later called in the New Testament the father of the faithful, you would have thought that statement would have been said of Abraham or possibly of Moses, the great deliverer who stood up to Pharaoh and led the people through the wilderness for 40 years. Or, or maybe even David, the humble shepherd boy who later was called of God to shepherd the nation of Israel, was the greatest of all of Israel's kings, the one whom both Testaments calls a man after God's own heart. Or maybe we would have thought that statement would have been made of Daniel, who served as the Winston Churchill of his day in one of the darkest hours in Israel's history as the people were in exile. And he served as the prime minister there in Babylon. But it was not written of Abraham or Moses or Noah or Joseph or Paul or Peter, but of John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, it seems surprising that God would say that of John the Baptist because he did not have the public appeal that you would typically think to rate someone so high. In fact, if John were around today ministering, you would have thought that his ministry was weird and not seeker-sensitive. He lived out in the desert. He didn't dress like most people dress. He ate a rather unusual diet consisting of locusts and honey. And, and certainly his message was not attractive because he preached about sin. 
and the need for people to repent. To put it in modern-day terms, if you're trying to market the message of Christianity, you wouldn't have chosen John to be on your staff. Or to put it in political terms, if you're running for office, he certainly would not be your campaign manager. But God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Paul told the Corinthians, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He's chosen the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Now, I've often thought, why is it, Lord, that you would give this tremendous compliment of all compliments to John the Baptist? And I've pondered that. And number one, I think it's because he had a heart to please God. Number two, he could care less what people think. And number three, the most significant trait that I believe is highlighted here in our text of Scripture this morning, he was not wanting to make a name for himself, but for Jesus Christ. As the forerunner of Christ, he had three primary responsibilities. First, he was to clear the way for the Lord by removing the obstacles in the hearts and minds of people so that they would be ready when Christ came. Now, we don't live in the first century, but if we did, the Messiah that we would have wanted was not the Messiah that John presented. We would have wanted another image of Messiah, for there are two presented in the Old Testament, one that deals, though, with his second coming, the other with his first. A lot of saints couldn't differentiate between the two, but we would have liked the image where he comes and he rules as a rod of iron and he crushes the people under his heel, and Israel once again becomes a superpower that she once was. John has to break up that image. He has to clear the way and say, no, this is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He not only came to clear the way of the world, Isaiah, as Isaiah 40 verse 3 teaches, he also came to prepare the way of the Lord, as Malachi chapter 3 highlights. And he would do this by promoting repentance, to tell people to turn from their sin, and then to prove that repentance publicly by being baptized. So as the forerunner, he cleared the way of the Lord. He prepared the way of the Lord. But he also got out of the way of the Lord. He had to decrease that Jesus Christ might increase. And he willingly and enthusiastically did that. And I really believe that that was a trait among all of them that made this man so great. Now, down through the ages of the church, this is not always... Uh, this, is, this is what has always separated those whom God uses and those whom he does not. And I want us to see this this morning, some of the timeless principles that God has for us. Follow along in your Bible as I read verse 22, where we left off last time. John chapter 3, beginning now in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Anan near Salem because there was much water there, and they were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, 
but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he bears witness and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. As you can see there on the note-taking outline on the back of your bulletin, I've divided this portion of Scripture into three sections. First, in verses 22 through 26, we have a record of what John the Baptist does. In verses 27 to 30, what John the Baptist declares. And finally, in verses 31 to 36, what John the Apostle defends. So let's begin with by considering what John the Baptist does. Consider first the circumstances around this man's ministry. We read here in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. After these things, you immediately ask, after what things? Well, after the cleansing of the temple, after the completion of Passover, after the conversation with Nicodemus, the Bible says he came into the land of Judea. Now, wait a minute. He's in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is in Judea. So what does it mean he came into the land of Judea? Well, it's simply the way they would describe leaving an urban area and going into the countryside. Now, the NIV does not literally translate the text, but it does correctly interpret it when it says Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. That's the thought. Now, why did he go into the countryside? Well, one Bible commentator I read said he went there in complete frustration having left town because they did not receive him as the Messiah. I don't think so. Uh, Christ was not frustrated. He didn't run away because he was confronted and not accepted. I think there are at least three reasons, and they come right here from the text of Scripture. Number one, he wanted to be with his disciples. Number two, he wanted to baptize. And number three, he wanted to make the transition from those following John the Baptist and those who needed to follow him. Again, we read, and he was spending time with them and baptizing. Notice two things he was doing with his disciples. First, spending time with them. Jesus spent time with them because these are the men whom he was going to build his entire ministry on. And so he's building into their lives. He's discipling them, as we might call it today. Now, when we think of discipleship, too many Christians think of somebody down the street or at the office. Oh, it may include that. But the very first level of discipleship is in your home. If you're married, it's with your spouse. If you have children, it's those kids. Hey, listen, today, if Christian parents would just disciple their kids and you cannot impart that which you do not possess, if you would walk with God and disciple your kids in that context the church in America would have a radical impact. May God help the next generation to do that if Christ tarries. And of course, the Lord is not just spending time with them. The text says he was baptizing. Now, this is the only gospel that notes that Jesus and his disciples were out here in the wilderness baptizing. 
And as chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2 indicate, he himself was not literally baptized. You notice, drop down to 4.1 there in your text. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. So he's noting here that Christ, when he says he's baptizing here in verse 22, he's baptizing in the sense that he's involved in the process. He's supervising it. He's using his disciples as the instruments to perform the baptism. Now, an obvious question that we might ask is, what kind of baptism was Jesus doing with his disciples? Well, logic would immediately tell us that he was not baptizing for the same reason that John the Baptist was baptizing, because his baptism was one of preparation. And as we'll see in a moment, the context will draw out, there had to be two different kinds of baptism going on, because there's an argument over it. Now, John's baptism was to get people's hearts ready for the coming of Messiah. And John had already introduced the Lord Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And so for Jesus to do what John did, a baptism of preparation, would be to deny his own Messiahship. So we know that's not involved. So what precisely is he doing? Well, most conclude, and I would agree, that this is probably the closest thing that we have to what we call believer's baptism today. But it's in a prophetic sense. The Bible says believe and be baptized. Man has reversed it. We baptize little babies. Later we ask him to believe. God's order is always the same. Believe and then be baptized. There's not a single example anywhere in all the Bible of a little baby being baptized. It's always a believer. If you believe, Philip said, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, your Savior, then, he says, you can be baptized. And, of course, in the Bible, it was always done by immersion. The word baptizo is just a transliteration of the Greek letters. But it literally means to immerse, to submerge. And so when one is baptized, they're brought under the water and up again because it's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Listen, if I die, don't drag me into the field next door and sprinkle a little sand on me. Put me six feet under. Death is pictured by immersion and resurrection as you come up out of the water. Now, this is the only time Christ and his disciples ever do this. And I think it's in a prophetic sense. And among other things, I believe he's preparing them for one of two ordinances that God has given in his church. There's not seven sacraments, not seven ordinances, two Baptism and the Lord's Supper, those are the only two you find in the Bible. And it won't be that much later when these 12, really 11, well, 12, because Matthias took Judas's place, would baptize some 3,000. Think of that. Those 12 men baptized 3,000 in one day. I figure that's about 250 apiece. Now, the most I ever baptized in one day was 68. Now I was whooped when I was done. But here's a baptism that's prophetic of sorts. Now, there's two kinds of baptisms going on, that by Jesus' disciples and that by John the Baptist. And these baptisms are distinctly different. It's clearly implied by the dispute that follows. Verse 23, and John also was baptizing in Anan near Salem because there was much water there. And they were coming and were being baptized. Now, Jesus is in Judea, probably near the Jericho uh, at the ford of the Jordan River. And John the Baptist is in this place called Enon near Salem. Now, Enum is a distinctive term. 
It's actually a very descriptive term because the Greek word Enin literally means a place of abundant springs. I've only been to Yellowstone Park once in my life, but I enjoyed seeing the springs there. And some of you have been there and you've swam, swam in them. Uh, some of them are ice cold, they're frigid. Some of them are so hot you can't get in. But in a few places, they blend together and they're just delightful to bathe in. Well, if you've been to Yellowstone, you really get a picture of what this place is like. Because it's a place where there are seven major springs within a quarter of a mile of one another. And John the Baptist is, has chosen this place to baptize for at least two reasons. First, because there was much water there. You cannot baptize by immersion the biblical way unless you have much water. Now, if you want to sprinkle, it needs, you need just a few drops. But to do it God's way, you need much water. And of course, only immersion can picture prophetically. And we look in hindsight now at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You have a message to preach the day God baptizes you with water. The day you choose to obey what God says, you are saying to all those watching, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, that that's the reason I'm saved. Not because of anything I've done, but I've trusted in the one who died, was buried, and risen from the dead. And so you see in Mark chapter 1 and verse 10, Jesus coming up out of the water. You see the eunuch who wants to be baptized, and it's conditioned, of course, first on his faith in Christ, and he confesses faith in the Lord Jesus publicly, as we ask people to do every Sunday in this church. And if they're willing to confess it publicly, I'm willing to baptize them. And so the Bible says he ordered the chariot to stop. And the Bible says they went down into the water, not to the edge of the water. He didn't go to the edge and sprinkle a few drops on them. He went down into the water and he baptized. He immersed him, the text says. So number one, he's here because there's much water. Number two, he's here because of the place. He's in Anan near Salem, which is the region of Samaria. Remember, John is still preaching the same message. Repent and prove that repentance by being baptized. Why? Because he's preparing the way for the Lord. Well, the Lord hasn't come to Samaria yet. And so John is preparing the way. We'll see the Lord Jesus next week, God willing, in chapter 4 in Samaria, reaching out to the Samaritans. And John is here now in a preparatory way for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Verse 24. For John, the Bible says, here's the reason why he is baptizing. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, John, if you remember, used to preach to a number of different people on one occasion. In fact, on several occasions, he preached to King Herod. Listen to this, Mark chapter 6. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod enjoyed the preaching of John, captivated by this man. Some people come and they hear preachers like me, and they enjoy it. Jesus said in the parable of the sower, some people receive the word with joy. They believe intellectually for a while, but when temptation and trials come, they fall away because it's only head knowledge. It never touches the heart. Touch this man emotionally, intellectually, but never actually believed because when John got real personal and he told Herod it was not lawful for him to be married to his wife, he ended up cutting off the man's head. 
Now, for John, the Bible said, here's the reason he's baptizing, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, the comment here by the Apostle Paul, this parenthetical statement, is not simply to give us the obvious, because obviously if one is incarcerated, he can't baptize. No, he's giving us a very important chronological comment here. He's letting us know that there was a time when dual baptisms took place during the ministry of Christ and the ministry of John the Baptist. You would never discover this from any of the other Gospels. And so John, who writes the final Gospel, highlights this. You read the other Gospels, you go from the baptism, the temptation of Christ, to John's imprisonment. And you never discover that there was a period of time, probably about six months, where they were both baptizing. And so John puts that here as a very important circumstance. So those are the circumstances around this man's ministry. Consider also the confrontation by John's disciples. What follows, beginning here in verse 25, is a confrontation that the Lord Jesus knew would happen. And as I already said, this was, I believe, his primary reason for going out into the countryside and having this baptism. Now, as far as we know, Jesus and his disciples never baptized again That is, his disciples never again until the day of Pentecost. But this event is designed to bring about a transition between the ministry of John and the ministry of John the Baptist. So there's this confrontation. You have Jesus in one place preaching and baptizing. You have John the Baptist in another place preaching and baptizing. So people would naturally ask, why two? How are they different? Which one is better? And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus wanted to happen. It's like clockwork. So the crowds had been following John the Baptist, but little by little, they're leaving. And they begin giving their attention to Christ. And so that upset some of the disciples of John. We read here in verse 25, there arose therefore, see that word therefore, circle it, underscore it, It tells you that it's tied to what he has just said. This word, therefore, looks back at this baptism. Because of these two ministries, where both are baptizing at the same time, there arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. So in this Jew's mind, and some translations say Jews, plural, there's a debate whether we translate it singular or plural, it changes absolutely nothing. In either case, there arose a dispute, an argument over purification because of these two baptisms, because obviously there is a difference in how they were connecting these two baptisms. Now this word discussion is a Greek word that means a discussion that leads to an argument. So some of your translations may say dispute or argument. That's really the thought. Now we saw in an earlier sermon in this series in the Gospel of John how overly concerned some of the Jews were with purification rites. And it seems here over this issue of baptism that it's connected in some way to purification. And so the word therefore. Now under the Old Testament, if you remember, there were certain purification laws that allowed a Jew to be ceremonially clean so that he could approach God and really serve and please God. But unfortunately, the Pharisees of the day had added all kinds of extra laws, man-made laws, traditions not found in the law that put a burden on the people. And so there were a lot of debates in that day over how one should wash their hands, how they should cleanse their utensils before the food went into their mouth. And we studied one of these in Mark chapter 7 a few weeks ago. 
And of course, these Pharisees were so intense on just having everything done just right and where they could have the outside of the cup nice and clean. But the inside was absolutely filthy. And so Jesus taught in Mark 7, what to follow man is not what went into a man's mouth through an unceremonially clean hand or utensil, but what came out of the man's heart. That's what defiles him. So here's the disciples of John having this argument with this Jew over personal over purification. And what begins on doctrinal grounds quickly moves to personal grounds. What was the discussion over the role of baptism as it related to purification as to whose was right became an issue of whose ministry was best. Whose baptism is better? Jesus's or John's? And of course, we read from the beginning of John's ministry. Remember, four days are recorded in the life of John in this gospel. Day one, folks are asking him questions. Day two, he's answering questions. Day three, he introduces at least two disciples to the Lord Jesus. Here's day four. There's one other day in the gospels when we find him in a jail scene, and really six if you include the day that he dies. And so whose baptism is better, Jesus's or John's? From the beginning, from day one, John said, I'm not the light. He is the light. I'm just a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I just baptized with water. One is coming after me who is far greater. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. So when you have these two powerful preachers, both involved in what appears to be a similar work, it would be quite easy for friends and enemies to begin to compete with one another, which brings us to the complaint, the complaint about John's competition. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, that is Jesus, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Now think your way through this and put yourself in their shoes. This is not just some piece of biblical narrative we skip over. It has all of the practical makings of competition, and there are some timeless lessons here for the church of Jesus Christ today. Please note, there's no mention here about the differing views of purification. There's just a complaint over why Jesus Christ is having a greater successful ministry than John. Remember, the mouth... Jesus said, speaks that which fills the heart. And it becomes apparent that what really concerns them is not an issue of purification, but an issue of following. Rabbi, you know the one you've been preaching about all this time, that you've been bearing witness to. Everybody's going to hell. It bothered some of these guys. Now, it didn't bother them as long as Jesus was preaching about Jesus and everybody was with John because they were on John's team. But John's team is no longer number one. It's slowly dissipating and shrinking, and they're going over to Christ's team. And so there's some pride and some jealousy that begins to come up to the top of the human heart. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 009. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, 
What about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.